This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. This is our final study in the Armor of God series out of Ephesians chapter 6. Now, if you are familiar with Ephesians chapter 6 and the Armor of God, you might think that we finished off studying the Armor of God last time when we looked at the Sword of the Spirit at the end of Ephesians 6.17. But if you think that, you would be wrong. <laughs> there is one final piece of armor, or maybe we should say equipment or tool or resource available to you in spiritual warfare, and Paul writes about it in Ephesians 6, verses 18, 19, and 20. This is sort of the secret weapon of spiritual warfare, and that's what we will be looking at in this study in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. All right, now, I do want to let you know that if you enjoy these studies, I am making a course and a book that I'll go along with them, and you can get both of those for free no additional charge when you join my online discipleship group at redeeminggod.com. Now, if you're not sure you want to join that group, that's fine. I do have some free emails that you can also get. They don't go into it, uh, as much depth. You don't get access to the courses or the free ebooks or anything like that, but you can get some uh, basic introductory truths to discipleship group. Uh, uh, straight to your inbox, your email inbox. To get those, just go to my website, redeeminggod.com. And at the top and bottom of every page and post, there is a place where you can enter your name and your email address to get those emails. Okay, so uh, that's at redeeminggod.com. So with all of that in mind, and I hope you join me there, let's get into our study of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Okay, so this is the final study on the spiritual warfare section in Ephesians chapter 6, and we are looking at sort of the secret weapon or the special piece of uh, equipment that God has given to us for use in spiritual warfare. All right. Uh, you might think that the last piece of spiritual armor was mentioned there at the Sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6.17, but that is not the case. The last piece of equipment or resource available to us is here in these final three verses of this Armor of God section in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. All right, so uh, we've looked at the six pieces of spiritual armor, but there is this one vital element left. And it's not exactly a piece of armor, but it is still essential, required, necessary for victory on the field of battle. And what is it? Well, I can just tell you right away, uh, it is getting air support from heaven. <laughs> it is prayer. Prayer is the messaging system between ourselves and God on the field of battle. All right, in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul writes about prayer. He writes about the importance of us communicating with God and allowing God to communicate with us. So as we look at this sort of final element 
of spiritual warfare, we're going to consider it in the exact same way that we have considered the other six pieces of armor. We're going to look at how messaging worked for the Roman soldier on the field of battle, and then we are going to look at how messaging works for us as Christians in spiritual warfare, and then finally, we're going to learn several truths about how to better communicate with God and allow Him to communicate with us. So, first and foremost, how messaging worked for the Roman soldiers. As you know, communication is essential in any sort of relationship. If you're married or with kids, you know that communication is essential. It's essential in your job as well. And, of course, it is essential on the field of battle. It's essential for sports teams and all areas, politics, everything, uh, but especially for those on the field of battle. The commanders, the generals, those in charge need to send instructions to their soldiers, and different commanders of different units need to be able to communicate with each other in order to coordinate their attacks and help out where their, their soldiers are being defeated or are weakened, all right, where, where, where they're needed on the battlefield. And so to achieve these goals, one of the things that made the Roman military so effective was their ability. They came up with an ingenious system for communicating with each other on the field of battle. Now, if they needed to do this over a, just a short distance, then they would use runners. Roman officers always had a team of runners whose job it was to carry messages from one part of the battlefield to the other. And these runners would either deliver these messages verbally, they would memorize them and then run them and, and recite them, or sometimes they would write these, the commanders would write these messages down on wax tablets, which could then be erased and reused, smoothed over and reused. All right, but sending a runner is not always the best option, is it? Uh, it's great for short distance, but it's not great for long distances necessarily. Um, or when one part of the, the military, the soldiers, one unit is separated from another unit, maybe by a geographical feature, a valley or a river, or maybe by enemies. Maybe there are enemies in the way. And so the Roman military devised an ingenious solution for these sorts of situations. They developed a system which helped them gain victory over their foes on the field of battle, and so that uh, they could send short messages over long distances and even to other units on other parts of the field of battle or these other units that had been separated from the main force. Uh, it was sort of people, I've, I've read lots of articles on this form of messaging, and it was a, a, an early form of text messaging. All right, text messages you think about, they are these short, at least they used to be. Sometimes text messages are longer today on your phone or device or whatever, uh, but they were short, you know, two, three, four word uh, uh, pieces of information that they could pass around. And here's how they did it. The Roman military used a, a system of uh, two sets of five flags, and the flags were bright red with the numbers one through five painted on them, and then the flags were fixed to poles about 12 feet in length, all right? And uh, the military then arranged these, uh, these sort of made a grid out of their alphabet with five columns and five rows, all right? Uh, and then assigned each letter of the Latin alphabet to a box on the, on the grid, 
So um, I, I have it. If you're able to go to my website, redeeminggod.com, uh, Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20, I do have a, an example of how this worked and looked for them. So they would have the two sets of five flags, and you would create a little grid system uh, with five rows and five columns, and then they put a letter of the alphabet into each box on the grid, okay? So for example, if they wanted to share, use the letter A, then this would be column one, row one, because that's where the A was. If they wanted to share the letter B, then this is column two, row one. That's where the B is. And if they wanted to share the letter C, they're still in row one, but now it's in column three. Okay, so they could use their set, the, the, the two sets of five flags to spell out uh, short words and even short sentences to send a message to various parts on the battlefield. Uh, at night, by the way, they would use sets of torches. Not quite as easy. Uh, rather than having uh, you know, two sets of flags, they would raise up you know, five torches for the number five, and they would arrange the torches in, in groups to show you which, which letter or number that they had in mind, okay? So the point is, though, with such methods, the Roman military was able to spell out uh, words and sentences and uh, communicate back and forth. Commanders could send messages to each other and to their soldiers, and, and this allowed all parts of the Roman military to work together as a whole. And this is one of the things historians have said that, that helped the Roman military gain victory over their enemies on the field of battle. Now, the downside to this sort of messaging, it was time-consuming. You can imagine, you have to raise flags for one letter and then do it again. All right, and so therefore they would only use it to send short messages. Now, so rather than send a long message such as the enemy is in full retreat with our legions in pursuit, right? They're not going to text that. Uh, they're going to say something like enemy retreat, right? It's much shorter. It's a, a, a as compact message as possible. And even that, you can imagine they have to raise two flags for one letter and then another two flags for another letter and the other people now are writing it down, okay, uh, that even just two words could probably take about a minute or so to send. But that's better than no messaging at all, correct? And so uh, this is what helped the Roman military, the various parts, the various legions communicate with each other and uh, gain victory on the field of battle. So, uh, the, uh, this is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 6, verses 18 to 20. All right. Um, he is hinting here at a tool that the Roman military used to communicate and what you and I can use to communicate on the field of battle as well. And so what is it that allows us to communicate with God and God to communicate with us in spiritual warfare? Well, obviously, it's prayer. In Ephesians 6, verses 18 to 20, Paul invites his readers, the Ephesian Christians, to pray. And prayer is the Christian form of messaging. It's how we send messages to God and it's how we hear his messages to us. Prayer is how we ask for help, how we make our needs known, and how we seek help from God for help uh, for other Christians who are battling alongside us, right? Or on other sides of the world, even. 
All right. So, so Paul is going to talk about prayer in these verses. Now, how does prayer work for the Christians? Because this is the, the second thing we want to talk about. Uh, well, this is the third time Paul has written about prayer in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, he previously wrote about prayer in the early part of his letter in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And then he also wrote about, about prayer in the middle of his letter in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. And now here he's writing about prayer at the end of his letter here in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. Uh, by the way, if you want to read sermons on those other prayer passages, uh, those are also are available on my website at redeeminggod.com. Just go to redeeminggod.com, click the scriptures section, and uh, there, there are some sermons on Ephesians there that you can read. So uh, just, just click scripture, then choose the Ephesians section, and you can, you can read those sermons on Ephesians uh, 1 and Ephesians 3. But the point is, at the beginning, middle, and end of Paul's letter, he's writing about prayer. So for Paul, prayer is the beginning, middle, and end of life and ministry, right? And it's interesting, you compare these three prayer sections of Paul in Ephesians, all three of them, Paul writes that one of the main things he prays for, one of the main things the Ephesian Christians should pray for, one of the main things you and I should pray for is power. Power from God, power for our lives, power to live, power to defeat the enemy. And why power? Because you and I are engaged in spiritual warfare against these spiritual forces of wickedness. And if we are going to stand our ground, if we are going to stand on our feet against this enemy that is arrayed against us, we are going to need power. And one of the best ways to receive power is to pray for it, to ask God to give us, make, help us make use of his power. God's power in us, through us, flowing through us, is what enables us to stand our ground and fight back against the enemy. C.S. Lewis writes a lot about prayer, and in one of the places he writes about it is, is in his book, Mere Christianity. And in that book, he writes that this world is enemy-occupied territory. And Christianity is a story about how the rightful king of this territory, Jesus, has landed, has made his landing on the beach, and he is calling all of us to take part in his campaign of sabotage so that he can take back what is rightfully his. And we are part of that war, that battle, that sabotage campaign. And C.S. Lewis says it is primarily through prayer that much of this sabotage takes place, okay? So prayer is a warfare activity. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Um, it, it is, it is a, uh, the actions of us trying to sabotage the enemy's plans and goals. And uh, this is seen, uh, this should be seen how most Christians pray, right? Uh, and yet, if you think about how most Christians pray, does it seem like a warfare activity? Do we pray as if we are under siege, in battle, the enemy is surrounding us, and we are calling down air power, air support from heaven? No, far too often, prayer for the Christians is exactly the opposite. I have been in Christians, and even the school I went to for my undergraduate uh, studies, uh, they they're 
there, there are places where you can go to where there are prayer closets. And I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer closet. I've even seen some prayer closets in people's houses. And usually, almost every prayer closet I've ever seen, they have, uh, it's this little small little room, basically like a closet, and they usually have dim lighting. There's usually some cushioned seats, maybe even some padded kneelers so you can kneel and your knees won't get uncomfortable kneeling there for a while. Very often, there's, especially in churches or in, in the school I went to, there was some soft music sort of being piped in that gets you into the mood for praying. It's very peaceful and relaxing. Sometimes there's stained glass windows with some nice colorful light shining through. Usually there's a Bible and some colored pencils for you to help study your Bible in there. It's a little cup holder for your latte or whatever, okay? Prayer is warfare activity. And so therefore, if prayer is warfare activity, what should a prayer closet... First of all, we shouldn't even have prayer closets. <laughs> prayer closets is a way to retreat from the world so we can be alone by ourselves and praying. Maybe we shouldn't even have prayer closets. We should go be praying on the streets or whatever, where there's, where there's crime and, and uh, all sorts of people with sin and problems, things like that. Uh, but Jesus retreated to pray, and so we can too at times. So if we're going to pray, though, in a prayer closet, maybe prayer closets should be more like foxholes, <laughs> right? Rather than having the soft music and the stained glass and the padded chair and the, the, the kneelers, maybe we should have sandbags and bullet casings, <laughs> bullet shells lying around on the floor, right? Uh, maybe rather than having the soft music, we should have uh, music of, of tanks and guns and screams of hurting people wounded people, wounded soldiers all around us, right? Prayer is not chatting on the phone with God as we stroll through a bed of roses, right? Smelling and looking at all the beautiful sights. Prayer is the frantic radio call of a platoon that is under heavy fire and we're calling for air support. We're saying, God, help, send help. We need your intervention if we are going to live through this, if we are going to survive. God, help us out. All right? Uh, it, it's often helpful, helpful to band together with other Christians in this sort of prayer. Remember, as Christians on the field of battle, we are a band of brothers, and that means we need to come together uh, uh, to support each other on this. It's sort of like, remember, in the, in the early history days of the United States where we live, um, and even in the early histories of pretty much every nation on earth, when the pioneers headed uh, out to where they were going, and here in the United States, headed west, right, to colonize and to, and to head west for the gold rush and everything else out in California, you know that the, here, in, here in the United States, they would typically situate their wagons in a circle. It's where we get the phrase, circle the wagons. And this helped provide better protection in case they were attacked at night. And that is how we should approach prayer as well. It is warfare activity. And as Christians, we need to come together, unite, band together, right? Uh, circle the wagons in a sense, so that we can huddle together and pray and, for, and, and protect one another in this warfare activity, okay? We are in a war and we need to pray like it, all right? So this is prayer for the Christians, messaging for the Christians. Um, it is the military, it is our form of a military messaging, through prayer, we communicate with God, 
We call for help. We call for aid. We call for air support. And through prayer, it is how we receive instructions and directions from God. It is how we know what our marching orders are, how to proceed in battle. All right, so, and this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. So let's look at the text uh, real briefly here for this study, uh, just for the last half of the study or so. Okay, in these three verses, Paul provides several instructions on what to pray for and how to pray. So let's look at what these are. Now, the the greatest problem with prayer, uh, in, in my thinking, is that many Christians don't really know what to pray for or even how to pray. And uh, that's why I wrote my book, by the way. I did write a book on this uh, called What is Prayer? And it basically walks you through. I think most Christians have a really poor understanding of what prayer is and even how to pray and what to pray for. So that book, What is Prayer?, seeks to answer most of your questions that you might have about prayer. And those who have read it have found it extremely helpful. Basically, I want you to know that prayer is not a magic incantation right? You sometimes feel that, that Christians think that if they could just say the right words in the right way, right, with the right cadence, <laughs> um, then God will act on their behalf. And so if you don't say it right, you don't pray the right way, well, then that's why God didn't step in to act, okay? But as I reveal in the book, what is prayer? Prayer is nothing more than talking to God the way you would talk to any other friend, all right? If you can talk to your wife or your husband or your children or your coworkers, then you can talk to God. There's no special formula, special words, special language, special posture that you need in order to pray. If you can talk to somebody else, then you can talk to God. And I would encourage you to start thinking about your prayers that way. Do you talk to God in a way that is different than you talk to other people? If so, you are probably not praying properly. It's not that God isn't hearing your prayers, but but God wants you to communicate with him because he's a person too, just the way you communicate to other people. All right? So you don't need all this weird, special, flowery theological language. You don't need to be repeating the name of God, Holy Father, Father God, Jesus. You don't need to be repeating those over and over. You don't need a special cadence where you're, you know, emphasizing certain words to, you know, you don't need any of that. You can talk to God the way you talk to anybody else. That's the main point of my book, What is Prayer? But, uh, but again, when you talk, think about what sorts of things you can talk to God about, uh, again, thinking about what you talk to other people about is going to help you. Do you repeat the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over every day when you talk to somebody? No, you don't. Now, you might have similar topics that you talk about, but you're not going to be repeating the same thing every day for years on end to someone that you talk to. That's not a relationship. That's not a real conversation. Same with God. Uh, You can talk to him about anything that you might talk to someone else about. Okay, so anyway, I, I, ta- I talk about all of that. I share all that in my book, What is Prayer? But um, basically, also, we need to recognize prayer is not a monologue. When you have a conversation with somebody else, hopefully you do some talking and then they do some talking and there's a give and take, there's a back and forth. And that's the same way it is 
with communicating with God. I would encourage you as part of your prayer practice to take time to listen to God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in today's study. But here's what Paul is, is this is what Paul is talking about and emphasizing in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. He is writing about both aspects of prayer, us sharing our needs and requests to God and how we can do that. That's verse 18. And then verses 19 is one of the ways or a couple of the ways that God communicates back to us and how we can receive our marching orders, our commands from him. So let's look at verse 18 first, and then we'll close out real briefly with verses 19 and 20. What is very interesting about Ephesians 6, 18 is that just as Paul, um, uh, just as the Roman military used five prayers, I'm sorry, five flags, two sets of five flags, remember, to help communicate with each other, Paul, here in Ephesians 6.18, Paul lists five elements to prayer about how to use prayer in spiritual warfare. So just as there were five flags in the Roman military, Paul has five elements to praying as God wants. And was Paul really thinking, by the way, was Paul really thinking of the flags of the Roman military when he wrote Ephesians 6.18? I don't know, probably not. I just find it to be a helpful parallel for us uh, as we see how the Roman military communicated and how we can communicate as well. But anyway, let's look at these five ways, five aspects to prayer uh, from Ephesians 6.18. All right, first one is, Paul says, first two words of verse 18 are that we are praying always. So the first aspect to warfare prayer is that it should be perpetual, right? Uh, We must constantly be in communication with God. Paul's written about this elsewhere. He wrote in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we should pray without ceasing. Uh, This doesn't mean that we should always be on our knees praying all the time, right? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Again, Uh, You do not kneel and fold your hands and close your eyes when you talk to somebody else. So therefore, you do not need to be doing that when you pray to God either. And that is what helps us understand passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.17 or Ephesians 6.18 here. If you think that you need to bow your head, fold your hand, close your eyes to pray, then obviously you cannot pray without ceasing. (laughs) Uh, because you need to have your eyes opened as you drive and as you go to work. You need to, um, you, you can't always walk around with your head bowed and your hands folded. Okay, so, but when we realize what prayer is, then we can pray without ceasing. We can live in perpetual prayer to be praying always, as Paul writes here in Ephesians 6.18. So how? Well, uh, it's about training our mind to recognize that we are always in communication with God, that God is always with us, that God is always by our side. And just as we always have thoughts rumbling around in our head, we can change those thoughts, transform those thoughts, direct those thoughts toward prayer, communication with God. Brother Lawrence, if you've ever uh, read his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, this is what he basically writes about in his book, all right? And based on the title, it does take some practice to develop this skill. Uh, But basically, he writes, and this is a practice I myself have found very helpful over the years, that all you need to do is start refocusing, retraining your mind so that whatever it is you're thinking about, 
it doesn't matter what thoughts go through your brain. Whatever they are, change them, transform them, redirect them towards God, who is right by your side and would love to talk to you and communicate with you about whatever thoughts are in your head. And when you do this, prayer is perpetual. It becomes constant communication with God throughout the day. So, by example, you get up in the morning, and the very first thing that enters your mind, I don't know what it might be, is like, wow, that was a good night's sleep, or wow, that was a bad night's sleep, or wow, what a crazy dream, or what a nightmare, or okay, whatever the thought is, now you can change that and say, God, thank you for the good night of sleep. God, that was a really poor night of sleep. Um, I wonder what if there's something I need to change about my day, or, or God, I'm going to have struggle today because I didn't get very good sleep last night. I wonder if you can help me with that. God, that was a weird dream. That was a weird nightmare. I wonder what that was, what my body was telling me there. Okay, I don't know what you think about dream interpretation and all that. I don't put much weight into it, but uh, some people do. Okay, again, the point is your very first thought as you wake up in the morning, rather than have just the thought, direct it towards God. You go to eat your breakfast. God, thank you for the food I'm about to eat. Okay, you drive to work. God, thank you for the car. Thank you for the job that I have, okay? As you see the beautiful clouds or the sunrise or the birds or the trees, it's fall and the leaves are changing color, whatever it is, take those thoughts and direct them towards God who is with you, who is right by your side. Whenever you face struggles, fears, questions, doubts, temptations, whatever they are, rather than deal with them on your own inside your head, invite God into that conversation. Ask him for help, strength, courage, and power okay, to carry on, to resist the temptations, whatever it is they might be. Okay? So, um, when we become aware of a need or something of a friend or family member, you know, rather than say, oh, I'm going to pray for you at the next prayer meeting, pray for them right now. Okay, there's all of these things that we can do to make sure that we are in perpetual prayer with God as we go about our lives, making sure that we are praying always about all things, communicating with God who is with us and by us and, and at our side, talking with Him the way we would talk to anybody else who is who is walking this journey of life with us. Okay, so that's the first flag of prayer that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6:18. What's the second one? The second aspect to prayer is that it should be petitionary, right? Petitionary prayer is the second one. And uh, Paul says, he tells us to pray with all prayer and supplication. So the first word, prayer, just uh, refers to general requests, whereas that second term, supplication, by the way, your translations, your Bible translations might say petitions or requests. These are specific prayer needs. Okay, so Paul is basically saying, ask God for general things and specific things. Um, uh, most Christians automatically, we, it's just sort of what we're trained or it's, it's instinctive to do, to ask God for things in prayer. And we naturally pray for general things. You know, God help the missionaries overseas, right? Uh, help our politicians to get along and make wise decisions, that sort of thing. And specific needs. If you have a family member, as I do, who's a missionary overseas, my sister is, um, then I can pray for her and her family and specific needs that I am aware of with her, her, 
with her kids and her marriage and, and you know, health concerns, financial needs, whatever it is. I can pray for specific things. Rather than praying for all missionaries generally, I can pray for one specific missionary and her family specifically, okay? Um, so that's, that's what Paul is. Pray for general things, yes, and pray for specific things as well. All right, now, if, if this is what Christians automatically do, why does Paul even bring it up? Right? I think it's because Paul brings this up because quite often our prayers are too physical. All right. Very often, if you listen to your prayer requests or if you attend prayer meetings or you look at some of the prayer needs that are brought up in your church's bulletin or, or you know, at your Bible study or whatever, most Christians, it seems like 98% of the prayer requests that are out there are about sicknesses and money. Oh, pray for, you know, my Aunt Betty, she's got the flu. Pray for my Uncle Joe, he lost his job and he can't pay his bills. Pray for, right? (laughs) It seems like 98% of prayer requests concern someone's health or someone's finances. Uh, And, um, you know, surgery and and find a job and how are we going to pay our bills those sorts of things and look there's nothing wrong with those sorts of prayer requests because you would talk to those about anybody else right so therefore you can talk to god about them uh but those sorts of prayer requests are like 98% it seems to me just rough estimate about prayer requests but those only scratch the surface of the sorts of things we can talk to god about we can pray for especially in the context of spiritual warfare, right? If we are in spiritual warfare, God wants us to move past our physical needs, our health needs and our financial needs, and start praying for greater power. In the three prayers of Paul here in Ephesians, that is what he's mentioned. Prayer for power. Pray for influence over others and in this world to to help bring and... um, uh, have the rule and reign of God spread upon the earth, to pray for courage, to stand against darkness and temptation, um, to, to, to defeat temptation in our lives. That's something we can pray for, to spread the light of God's love to those around us, to figure out how we can love a difficult neighbor or a difficult coworker or a difficult family member. One of the ways you can train yourself to pray for these other things is to look at what Jesus prayed for. Go and look at the prayers of Jesus and see what he prayed for and how he prayed. Do this with the prayers of Paul. We have three of them right here in the book of Ephesians. to See what he prayed for. You can look at the prayers of Daniel and the prayers of Peter, the prayers of the other people, great men and women of the Bible, to see what they prayed for, and that will help train you on what you can pray for as well in, in spiritual warfare. Okay, remember, this is a warfare activity. And when you're in war... You're not super concerned about your sicknesses and your health. You're concerned about surviving. And you're not super concerned about whether or not you can pay your bills. Again, you're concerned about surviving and being victorious on the field of battle and helping your fellow soldiers be victorious as well. Right? So um, pray, you know, have general requests and specific requests, but also make sure you're moving past the health needs and the financial needs of yourself and other people. Um, pray scripture. This is something I find extremely helpful. Pray the Psalms. Psalms are very, very helpful, but it doesn't have to be just the Psalms. Every single time I read the Bible, um, whether it's Psalms or even the book of Ephesians or Genesis or whatever, reading the Bible, any single passage 
you can convert the verses, the truths, the ideas, even the stories into prayerful communication with God. As you read about Genesis 1, you can say, God, what is this teaching me about yourself? Help me to understand the truths here about how you formed and filled the world and all these sorts of things, okay? Uh, as you read the book of Esther or Jonah or the, uh, the Gospels, you can read them prayerfully. So not just reading them for information, but read them in communication with God, okay? So this is one of the ways you can help transform your prayer requests and move past these, what most Christians pray for, their financial needs and their health needs, all right? So uh, let's move on to the third thing we can pray for then, the third flag in Ephesians 5.18 about how to pray, and this is powerful prayer. I just mentioned this briefly. This is, Paul has mentioned uh, praying for power uh, in his two previous prayers before. When we pray, and whatever it is we pray for, the true effectiveness, the true answers to prayer comes when we are praying in the Spirit. All right, Paul doesn't actually mention the word power here exactly the way he has before, uh, but he's talking about praying in the Spirit. And by the way, this is not a reference to praying in tongues. All right, uh, the, the context reveals that sp- praying in the Spirit refers to something else entirely. What, what does it refer to? Well, you go back to Ephesians 5.18, where we remember that being filled with the Spirit, again, I have this study on my website, redeeminggod.com, under the Scripture section, for uh, the, the sermons on Ephesians, and you can go read that sermon, that study on Ephesians 5.18, to find out that being filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. And in the context of Ephesians 5.18, uh, one of the things the Spirit does is help us sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, and songs, hymns, and spiritual songs are, are basically nothing more than prayers put to music. So spirit-filled prayer, it's not when you, you know, speak in an angelic language or anything like that. No, spirit-filled prayer is when the spirit guides us to speak in your everyday language, right? Uh, to, to, to sing and pray to him in words that both you, your mind, and other people can understand, okay? But secondly, and in the more immediate context— we learned from uh, Ephesians 6, 17, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And this means that when the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and in our minds to speak to us and to help us speak to God, then he is using, the Spirit is using the Word of God to inform us and guide us and even help us know what to pray for. So, This is uh, Spirit-filled prayer. When we pray in the Spirit this way, we can know we are praying according to the will of God. Look, if you pray Scripture, then you are praying God's will, because God's will is revealed in Scripture. As we follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit in praying for Scripture, in praying Scripture, then we know that we are praying what God wants us to pray for. If you pray the promises of God in the Bible, then you know that you're praying according to the will of God. And the Spirit then helps us to in, he helps inform our, inform our prayers. And all of this means, then, that our prayers become powerful, right? Because if we know that we are praying according to the will of God, and we know that God gives us what his will is, then we know that he's going to answer our prayer requests. Our prayers will be powerful and effective because we are praying in the Spirit. We are praying according to the will of God, according to the revealed will of God in Scripture. 
right? Uh, Jesus teaches, or I'm sorry, not Jesus. John writes about a similar truth in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. John writes this. He says, now this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Okay? So the big key there is if we ask anything according to his will. Lots of people think they're praying according to his will when they're praying for nicer cars or better vacations or maybe even have their health fixed or whatever. But uh, those are not necessarily promises in the Bible. And so therefore, you might not be praying according to the, the will of God when you pray for those things. But when you do pray according to God's will, then he hears us and he answers. And that makes spirit-guided prayer extremely powerful. John Wesley, this great preacher of the awakening, the great awakening, boldly stated that God does nothing but in answer to prayer. Might be a bit of an exaggeration because God does all sorts of things uh, that people don't pray for. Uh, But it does appear from Scripture that much of what God does in our lives, uh, uh, He does in answer to prayer. Prayer, in a sense, is God saying, I am omnipotent. This is what God says. I am omnipotent, and I am giving some of that omnipotence, that power, to you. And although there's lots of things I will do, God says, that you don't pray for, There's some things that I'm not going to do unless you pray for them. So God, in a sense, is waiting for us to pray for things before he steps out and acts on our behalf. And so that is what makes prayer so powerful. When we pray according to the Spirit, pray according to the revealed will of God, then the Spirit, uh, our Spirit-filled prayer, helps God move the world, change history and accomplish his will on earth. And this is truly powerful prayer. So, that's the, um, the one of the flags. Let's go on to the fourth flag in Ephesians 6.18. This is perseverant prayer. Paul says that we must be watchful to this end with all perseverance. This means we must, uh, to, to persevere in prayer, means that we don't just pray for something once. We, we pray for it, and we continue to pray for it until we've received what we asked for in prayer. Now, I said earlier, God doesn't want us to repeat. You know, re- He doesn't want repetitive prayer. Repetitive prayer is different than persevering prayer. Okay, uh, You can pray for the same thing in different ways, different times, without repeating yourself over and over and over. Okay, um, Now, persevering prayer may be one of the more difficult aspects of prayer because Sometimes we pray for things and we don't really get an answer. So we think, well, maybe that's not God's will. Maybe I shouldn't keep praying for that. Um, and, and sometimes we get a little, I don't know, sometimes I struggle with this as a human because I'm like, well, if God knows that I want something and God knows that I'm praying according to his will, uh, why is it better for me to pray for it 10 times or 100 times than one time? I mean, is God playing some sort of game with me? Like, oh, I want to answer your prayer, Jeremy, but you've only prayed for that three times. If you would pray for it five, okay, well, then I would. Is God playing that game with us? Uh, some think so. In fact, there's a parable in Luke 18 
uh, that some people think teaches that very thing. In this text, uh, there's this woman who is trying to get, she's a widow, and she's trying to get justice from an unjust judge. And how does she do it? Well, she goes and bothers him. The judge is trying to ignore her, and so she goes and just keeps asking over and over and over and keeping him from sleep and annoying him to death until finally the judge gives her what she wants just to get rid of her. (laughs) And some people say, that's how God is. We have to annoy God with our prayers until he finally is like, fine, here's what you want. Is that what Jesus is teaching with that parable? No, right? Um, It is confusing, but but, uh, Jesus goes on to say, that, uh, we, that, that God loves to give good gifts to his children, okay? God is not an unjust judge. He's the opposite. And basically, if this is how humans can get unjust people, this unjust judge, to give them what they want, well, then it's the opposite for us, because our God is not unjust. Jesus is not comparing God to the unjust judge. Jesus is contrasting God with the unjust judge. Okay, unlike the judge, God is a loving father who loves to give good gifts to his children, who loves to hear and answer our prayers. God does not give us a stone when we ask for bread. He does not give us a serpent when we ask for fish. That's Luke 11:11. 11, 11. God loves to give good gifts to us. Okay? So, that's not don't, don't read Luke 18 as this idea that you have to pester God with your prayer request because it's teaching the exact opposite. Okay? But if that's the case then why should we persevere in prayer? Again, if we're praying according to the will of God, then why is it helpful to pray for something 10 times or 100 times rather than just once? Well, there's three possible answers to that question. First, it is possible that God did immediately answer our prayer the first time we prayed for it, but due to various aspects of spiritual warfare, God is, well, the the answer to our prayer is delayed in arriving, delayed in getting to us. The spiritual forces of wickedness somehow are blocking that prayer request from getting to us. I know that's a challenging idea, but it's taught uh, in other pla- in one place, for example, various places, one of them is Daniel 10, verses 12 through 13. Daniel prayed for something for 21 days, and when the answer finally came to him, um, it, he, he discovered that God answered him on the first day, but the angel who brought the answer said, look, I was blocked from getting to you for 21 days, and the only reason I was able to get through is because you persisted in prayer. That gave the angelic answer, the messenger from heaven, uh, the strength and extra power and victory he needed in order to get that message through from God. So that's one of the reasons we persist in prayer, not because God is slow in responding to us, but because he's answered quickly and our prayer is now warfare activity to help that prayer answer, that answer to our prayer get through. So that's one of the reasons. A second reason that it is possible, the second reason for us to persist in prayer is that it is possible that some requests are not granted by God because they don't fully line up with God's will or God's timing. All right, maybe we are praying according to God's will, but it's the timing that is off. Okay, God has a promise, God has something he wants to give us, he even is planning to give us, but not right now. So God's not saying no, he's saying not yet. He's saying yes, 
but I'm going to give that to you later. And there's very reasons for this. Maybe God wants something in our own life, or our own heart, our own mind to change, to come more in alignment with God. And how does that happen? It, it happens through persistence in prayer. As we continue to pray for something, God then is now communicating with our heart and our spirit saying, look, I want to give that to you, but you have something in your life that is blocking it from coming, from happening. So change this, all right? Let's think differently about that. Let's have some different behavior and beliefs over here. Now you're ready for me to answer that prayer request. All that happens over time as we persist in prayer. The third reason, then, that that some prayers require perseverance, persistence, um, is because, you know what? God's a human being, and he wants us to remain in communication with him. God's not playing games with us, making us wait, right, uh, for some of the things we request. But at the same time, he doesn't want us to play games with him. God does not want us to view him like a divine Santa Claus, where anything we ask him, as long as we're on the good list, he gives it to us. No, uh, if that was the way God simply responded to our prayers, and he'd be like a genie in a bottle or something. God doesn't want us to think about him that way. He wants us to remain in communication with him. And one of the ways he does that is by not immediately giving us everything we ask. If you're a parent, it's the same way with your children. Your children ask you for something, for their birthday or for Christmas, or just because you're a parent and you love them and you want to give it to them. But if you're a good parent, you do not give everything to your children immediately when they ask for it, because some things aren't good for them, some things it's not right timing. Sometimes you've already got it for them and you're waiting for a special occasion to give it to them. Either way, though, you're not giving it to them immediately because you need them to wait. Also, you want them to remain in communication with you about it. Okay? So that is one of a third possible reason that God wants us to be perseverant in prayer, to persist in our prayer. All right? Uh, So when you pray and you don't see God immediately answer and respond, don't give up. Keep praying. Continue to bring your request to God uh, until he either answers the request or sometimes what happens is he changes your heart and mind until you realize, you know what, that wasn't the right request to pray for. But it's still an answer to prayer, right? Because now he has changed your heart, changed your mind so that you can see what you should pray for. Okay? So that's the fourth flag of prayer to God. Let's look at the fifth and final one, the uh, last part of Ephesians chapter 6. And this is purposeful prayer. God wants us to pray with purpose. Paul instructs his readers to make supplication for all the saints. All right? Uh, The word supplication is the same word that was used previously, and it refers to specific prayer requests. Here, though, rather than requests for ourselves, we're to make requests for all the saints, for other Christians— that uh, Paul is instructing us to intercede on behalf of other believers. Now, Paul mentions this because, honestly, look at your own prayer life. Listen to, watch the prayer life of other people. What do we most often pray for? Our own needs requests. Christian prayers are often sort of uh, a little bit of self-centered, <laughs> Right? Uh, We tend to focus on my own sickness, my own injury, my job, my finances, my marriage, my children, my struggles, my temptations, my problems. And look, 
There's nothing wrong with praying for your needs and your requests. But here at the end of Ephesians 6, Paul wants his readers to expand their prayer horizons a little bit and pray for the needs and concerns of others as well. Right? Remember, we are this band of brothers on the field of battle. There's no such thing as a lone ranger in spiritual warfare. So we need the people on either side of us to remain strong and healthy so they can help defend us in our times of need. And how do they remain strong and healthy as Christians? Well, one of the ways is by us praying for their needs and requests. So what should we pray for about others? There was a study I read a long time ago done by Victor Walter, and he did a study on all the prayers in the Bible, as well as all the instructions on what to pray for. And he discovered some shocking insights about what biblical prayer looks like. For example, he noticed many prayers were initiated by God instead of by a human. God comes and says, look, pray for this. <laughs> uh, Victor Walter also found that most prayers were for groups of people rather than for individuals. Go and look at a lot of the prayers, and people don't necessarily pray for individual people. They're praying for groups of people. Uh, typically, if a, a, a person like Jesus or an apostle had something that they were concerned about for an individual person, rather than pray for them, they would just go talk to them. <laughs> hey, I've noticed this in your life, brother. Uh, you need This needs to be fixed. They're not going to go say, God, this person in my life needs something fixed. No, they're just going to go talk to the person. Rather than talk to God about other individual people, go talk to the person yourself, okay? And be the, the voice of God, maybe, to them in that way. Uh, Victor, also, Victor Walters also noted that the Bible doesn't contain prayers for the unredeemed. Most prayers, all prayers, are for the people of God. Interesting. Now, this doesn't mean you should ignore the unredeemed, you know, non-Christians in your prayer. You can pray for them, sure. But um, in the Bible, it seems that rather than pray for non-Christians, the people in the Bible actually go and evangelize non-Christians. And that way they become part of the band of brothers, and now you can pray for them. Uh, Another thing he noticed is prophetic and apostolic prayers seemed to focus primarily on strengthening and supporting what was already working. Right? Rather than focus on the weaknesses and the weak links and so on, they notice the they, they, they notice what is strong and what is working, and they pray to God for more support and more strength for those areas. All right? So, for example, if a church was known for its faith, as the Colossians were, Paul prays that their faith would increase even more. Colossians 1, verses 4 and 6. If they're known for their generosity, like the Philippians, then Paul prays for their generosity to increase even more. Here in Ephesians, the Ephesian church was known for their power, so Paul has prayed frequently for their power to increase even more. Uh, And this makes sense on the field of battle. On the field of battle, look, you want to play to your strengths. You want to uh, make sure that the sniper does the best job being a sniper, that those who are expert swordsmen do the best job being a swordsman, and so on. And this just goes back to this whole theme about spiritual warfare, even. Um, We want to make sure that those who have spiritual giftedness are using their gifts to the best of their ability. So you find out what a person's strengths are, and you pray to God for those people to um, have their strengths used to the best possible way. All right, so, so those are just some of the things you can pray for when you are purposefully praying for the needs and issues of other people and other groups of people. 
So those are the five flags of prayer, how we can communicate with God. Let's just turn real briefly. There's two verses left in this section, verses 19 and 20. I'm not going to go into this section in great detail, but just quickly, these last two verses, how uh, you can hear communication back from God. There's lots of ways that you can hear communication back from God, uh, but Paul lists just sort of briefly one or two uh, in in this in this passage, obviously, on the field of battle, you not only need to communicate with your commander, you also need to hear his communication, God's communication to you. All right, and um, so th- there's various ways can, that God can do this, and one of those, as Paul mentions here, is he invites the Ephesian Christians to pray for him. Why? Because Paul is an apostle of the gospel, and he wants to preach and proclaim clearly and boldly the gospel to those who need to hear it. And so what this means then is that if you want to hear from God, one of the things, a couple of the ways you can do this is through scripture, through the word of God, reading and studying the word of God for yourself, and also listening to the preaching and teaching of other people who are proclaiming and teaching and instructing you about the word of God, like this podcast. Through this podcast, hopefully, you are hearing some of the communication of God through the the sound that comes into your ears because of what I'm teaching to you from Scripture. This is God, in a sense, communicating to you through those who are gifted with preaching and teaching like I am. All right? So, uh, and that's what Paul is saying. Pray for me so that I can boldly and clearly and accurately preach and teach and proclaim the Word of God, the gospel to other people. Um, Paul says in verse 19 that he wants utterance to be given to him. This is the Greek word logos. All right? It's the word for word. Remember, uh, in the previous study, in verse 17, we talked about the word of God there, but the, the word for word there is rhema, uh, which, which is referring to individual truths or ideas or promises from Scripture. But here the word is logos, and it's sort of the normal term for Scripture along with graphe. And uh, this means that Paul wants to provide clear and direct revelation from God to those who hear him preach and teach. By the way, if you listen to this podcast, I would invite you to pray for me for the same thing, please. Uh, I am under great strain in my life a lot of times in providing these studies, these lessons, and um, a lot going on in my life with my job and family and health and finances. And so, look, pray for me. Pray that I find the time and distractions. It seems like every week when I sit down to record this, there's something wrong with my computer that blocks me from being able to record it. Uh, So uh, pray for me. Uh, Pray for protection so that I am able to continue to perform these studies and get them out to you. And what is it that Paul wants to proclaim? He talks about the mystery of the gospel. Uh, The mystery of the gospel is that God has, has invited all people to participate in the church, not just Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And it's a mystery that had been hidden for ages and generations, Colossians 1.26, but was made clear by Jesus and, and through the apostles. And basically the mystery is that there's no more insiders and outsiders. You don't have the court of women, the court of Gentiles, and the court of men at the temple. No, everybody is now welcome. Everybody is now in. Everybody is now invited to participate in the kingdom of God, in the church that Jesus is building. And Paul wants to communicate that. Because this is a central truth for spiritual warfare. Remember, as we've seen in numerous times in previous studies, the, the, one of the primary lies and deceptions of the devil 
uh, is that we are God's accepted, we are God's loved and forgiven, and those people over there, those are the outsiders, those are the one God hates, those are the one God condemns. And so what happens is this leads to blame and accusation and ultimately, eventually, even to violence. But one of the truths of the gospel that Paul proclaimed, that Jesus showed, and that I try to make clear also in some of my teachings and writings, is what we see in the crucifixion of Jesus. That on the cross, Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil. So that all of us humans, who used to be at war with one another and hate one another, now we can live at peace with each other, live in unity and love. And that is one of the central truths of the gospel. And that is, when we proclaim the gospel and live the gospel in this way, this is how peace comes into our lives and peace spreads upon the earth. I go into great detail on that in some of the closing lessons in my um, uh, The Gospel According to Scripture online course. So if you're part of my discipleship group, make sure you can listen, make sure you take that course and get those last couple lessons there in that course. Paul talks about how he's an ambassador in chains, so he is in prison. And uh, he's an ambassador, though. He doesn't view himself as a prisoner. He's an ambassador, spreading the gospel to the Roman soldiers, to the Roman uh, who are chained to him, right? He's in chains, but they are chained to him. And so he's able to present the gospel to them. And uh, as we read elsewhere, Paul wants to take the gospel even to Caesar in Rome. And so uh, this whole section here, Paul is saying, look, you communicate with God, Ephesians 6, 18, God wants to communicate with you as well. He does that through scripture. He does that through you living the gospel, knowing the gospel, practicing the gospel. He does that through preachers and teachers of the gospel and of the word of God. So pray for them and listen to them so that you can hear instruction from God, your marching orders, from what Jesus wants you to do on the field of battle. And that is what Paul is talking about here in verse in the last two verses of this armor of God, this spiritual warfare section of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. On the battle, on spiritual battlefield, in spiritual warfare, we must communicate with God, and we must allow God to communicate with us. What we've seen in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20 is these five elements to our message to communicate with God. And one of the primary ways that God sends messages to us. So without this back and forth messaging, the battle would be chaotic, lives would be lost, and God's rule and reign would not advance upon this earth. The way we communicate with God and allow him to communicate with us is through prayer. Prayer you get one thing from this lesson, just remember, prayer is warfare activity. Through prayer, we make our needs known to God. We call down firepower from heaven to defeat the forces of darkness that are arrayed against us. Through prayer, we listen for the leading and guidance of God as he speaks to us by his Spirit and through the power of Scripture and through the power of biblical preaching and teaching. Through prayer, we coordinate our attacks against enemy strongholds and the command and goals of God so that the enemy strongholds are destroyed rather than the plans of God, so that deceptions are laid bare so, rather than us being deceived by them, and so that people are freed from their bondage to sin and death and the devil. 
If you want to be victorious on the field of battle, take up the whole armor of God, as we've seen in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. And finally, ultimately, here at the end, do not neglect the power of messaging God, sending messages to God and receiving messages from God through prayer. So, that's Ephesians 6, verses 19 to 20, the secret weapon in spiritual warfare. Prayer. Don't neglect it in your life, but also change how you think about prayer. A lot of times we think prayer, this this thing we do a little bit in the morning over our meals and at you know Bible studies and prayer meetings. That's not prayer. Prayer has been distorted and it's it's changed into this weird thing that's that, that lots of people don't enjoy and don't even know how to practice. But as soon as you begin to think about prayer, as I talk about in this lesson and in my book, What is Prayer? It's just talking with God the way you talk with somebody else. Your whole prayer life is transformed and changed and renewed and invigorated even because you can now communicate with God anytime about anything and you begin to see God work in amazing ways as never before in your prayer life. Look, if you enjoyed this study, and of all these studies on spiritual warfare and the armor of God, I strongly encourage you to join my discipleship group, my online discipleship group uh, at redeeminggod.com join. There is a fee for joining, but the fee there is not necessarily a price for you. Um, it's your way of saying thank you to me for the work and studies and resources I put out. And then my way of thanking you for supporting me financially in that way is by making the courses and books and other things available to you inside the discipleship group. I just don't, I don't want to just accept donations from people um, because there's lots of expenses related to this podcast and the books and my, my, my blog. Um, and so that's your way of thanking me. And then I get to thank you in return. Now, if you're not able to do that, but you still would like some of the truths and resources, you can do that as well, or even just get a taste of what's inside the discipleship group by signing up for the email list, free emails. But if you're in the discipleship group, don't get the emails. You don't need those. You have everything already. But you can get these free emails. Just go to my site, redeeminggod.com, and enter your name or address at the top or bottom of any single post or page. And I will immediately, within minutes, start sending those emails to you. Okay? And they introduce some of the key truths and ideas of following Jesus into the world and being a disciple of Jesus uh, wherever it is you go in life. Okay? So I'm not sure where we're going next in my podcast. This is the end of this spiritual warfare section. I think what I'm going to do next week is, actually, you know what? Next week is Thanksgiving. I'm going to take a week off. So in the first week of December, we will return uh, to this podcast. And I will probably do something along the lines of returning to my gospel dictionary uh, studies because there's so many keywords in the Bible that you need to understand. We'll be looking at some key texts related to the gospel, okay? So that's where we're headed next time uh, in two weeks, first week of December. See you then. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.